say, you know, you're all spending a lot of time on this leadership philosophy memo. It's usually one or one and a half pages. The truth is, you know, you'll do 15 or 20 drafts of it, but nobody really takes it all that seriously because, I mean, there's no, it's just, it's troops first or mission first, troops always, or some, some are more eloquent than others. But it goes up in the bulletin board, troops take a look at it, shrug their shoulders and say, okay, let's see what the, the commander emphasizes. And uh, it's really about what he or she will will really, again, spend time, resources, uh, money, et cetera, on. That's the real question. Yeah. So I actually didn't publish one, and nobody even asked me for it. But what I did publish was the five areas of priority. And so in the very first moment after taking command, after you make a short, very short speech, you know, usually one or two minutes at most, basically, uh, all standing orders remain the same. You then, we gathered all of the, the entire battalion together in a field house. And I just started, that's when they learned about the, the big five. Uh, and not just that, they learned about the elements of the big five. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself inspire others and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 66 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. Our goal in this show is to help you become the type of leader that inspires others to be their best. Today, I'm really excited to bring you my round two conversation with none other than General David Petraeus. I interviewed him back on episode 55 of this show, so I encourage you to go check out that episode where we covered a lot of ground about his upbringing, the people that influenced and inspired him the most, his mentors, and much more. But on that episode, I only got through about a third of the topics that I wanted to cover with him. So he was kind enough to come back on the show for a round two, and I really hope it's going to add value to you and your leadership today. Hey, if you're new to this show, first, I want to say thank you for being here. We release a new episode every two weeks, and my hope is that you'll walk away with practical leadership lessons from each session. If you want to make sure that you get every episode, that it comes straight to you every two weeks, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I also want to give a special thank you to all of you that share this podcast with your network, with your friends. I know every time we uh, release a new episode, it grows. We get more and more downloads, and I know that's because you are sharing it with your network, and I really appreciate that. Also, thank you to all of you that have taken a few minutes to rate or review this show on Apple Podcast in the U.S. or internationally. I want to give a shout out to Melissa Parnell, who recently wrote a written review on Apple Podcasts. She said, exceptional interviews, content, and guests. I look forward to each new episode with anticipation. Cal takes time to research and develop topics of interest and depth and content with each episode. As a leadership consultant, I value the methodology he employs and the relatable way he guides the show. If I could give this podcast 10 stars, I would. Melissa, thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you for helping us get the word out when people are looking for leadership podcasts and they see reviews like that or they see a rating then they can come to our show and we can uh, help more leaders out there. Also, another way that you can support this podcast, and I, I feel like this is a shameless plug, and I, I want you to know, I, I feel uncomfortable asking for this, but I know that the way we have a greater impact is through growth. And one way that you can help us, if that's something that you're interested in, is you can become a patron of Intentional Leader. You can go to patreon.com. It's this organization or platform where you can become a supporter of someone who's creating content. So you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, just slash Cal Walters, and you can become a monthly patron. You can give a dollar a month, you can give 50 cents a month, you can give $5, you can give more. And to help us build what we're doing here at Intentional Leader, we do have a very ambitious long-term vision and I have some volunteers who are helping me build that because I know I can't do it alone, but your financial support really helps. And I want to say thank you to my dad, Cliff Walters, and my stepmom, Roz Walters. I just saw that you joined my Patreon account, so thank you. I want to give you a public shout out. I really appreciate that. Also, 
consider joining the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. This is a place to get resources, debate leadership ideas, share struggles, problems, and grow in a private group where leaders can talk about issues that they're confronting in real time. And you have a group of leaders there who can help you think through ideas. Maybe you throw out, hey, I've got this problem at work and I'm trying to to figure out how to navigate it. And you have a group of leaders who are passionate about leadership development who might be able to help you. And that's, that's my vision for that. And I hope that that's what that can become. Today's sponsor is Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization or you to meet the rapidly changing complex and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders modernizing and enhancing your processes and implementing transformational technology solutions. Those are those three pillars that they focus on. They focus on your leaders, they're your people, they focus on your processes, and they focus on your technology. And when you get all three of those in sync and working together, man, you're going to you're gonna crush it as an organization. You're going to crush it as a team. And that's what Higher Echelon does. So go visit higherechelon.com to connect with Dr. Joe Ross and the growing team at Higher Echelon to learn more about how they can help you or your team today. I'm really excited for you all to hear my conversation with General Petraeus today. He is a partner and chairman at KKR Global Institute. Prior to joining KKR, he served over 37 years in the Army, culminating his career with six consecutive commands, five of which were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, command of U.S. Central Command, and command of coalition forces in Afghanistan. He also served as the CIA director. To see his full bio or to see show notes for this episode, go visit my website, calwalters.me. On this episode, we dive into how to find the right mentor how to be a great mentee, how to build a team, how to create the right culture, what he looks for when he's building a team and he's selecting people to be on that team and much more. I really think you're going to enjoy this interview. Please let me know what you think. Please do so by email or just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and that will give us some feedback, good or bad, things that you agree with, disagree. I'd love to hear from you. So without any further ado, please enjoy my round two conversation with General David Petraeus. General Petraeus, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being back. Great to be with you again, Kel. Thanks. So last time we, we covered a lot of ground and one of the topics we got to at the end of our conversation was some of your mentors, some of your mentors that had impacted you along the way. I'd love to today get really practical with leaders, give them some tips, some things they can go and apply right away today. What advice would you give to leaders out there about finding the right mentor? Well, first of all, mentors do make a huge difference. They made a great difference in my life and development. Uh, I was very fortunate to have some tremendous uh, senior officers along the way in the military and also some great uh, academic uh, mentors as well when I was doing a PhD at Princeton and so forth. Uh, and even now some business mentors, if you will. Um, so. Again, they are really are crucial, and they're very, very important, I think, in the development of all of us. Um, you know, I, I think it's a process where mentors seek you and you also seek mentors. Uh, it's a two-way street. Um, I've often thought that if you want a good mentor, you need to be a good mentee, if that's the term for someone who is being mentored. Uh, and examples of that are that you're give updates periodically to your mentor, even when you don't need another letter of recommendation or a bit of advice or what have you. Uh, and you build a real relationship that is beyond just uh, having to do with your own personal and professional development. Uh, I think mentors, frankly, tend to look uh, for individuals who have promise. Uh, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily looking for individuals who are like them, you know, 20 or 30 or some odd years earlier. But but I do think in the military, you're looking for promising young uh, commissioned, non-commissioned officers and so on. And and you're, you're, you want to have an impact on those who could potentially have an impact on the profession. So again, you're looking for promising individuals and, and particularly, I think, individuals who are at various forks in the road, as I was when one of my 
most important mentors, arguably the most important, uh, General Jack Galvin, for whom I served when he was a two-star division commander as his aide. Then I was a speechwriter special assistant for him when he was a four-star in U.S. Southern Command. Uh, that was a, a temporary duty assignment uh, between my first and second years at West Point. Uh, and then I went over and was his speechwriter when he became the finale commander of U.S. But he advised me at a really critical moment. Uh, he asked me, actually, uh, don't you think you should consider raising your intellectual sights farther than the maximum effective range of an M60 machine gun, which is the longest range weapon to an infantry company, which I had commanded before being his aide? And I got the message. So, you know, again, you, you want to try to attract mentors, if you will. Um, but you do that really just by doing the very best that you can. And if if you can demonstrate, again, I think a degree of excellence, if you will, a degree of promise, even more important, um, a, a desire to have mentors, to be responsive to them uh, and the rest of that, then I think uh, individuals find out that all of a sudden there are plenty of mentors that would like to help them along the way. And, you know, the world is filled with such people. Um, I'm privileged to see it now in the business world where the co-founders of KKR, Henry Kravis and George Roberts, who founded it 40 some odd years ago, the firm, uh, KKR, and they, they mentor every single day. Uh, they welcome the opportunity to meet individuals and to offer a few words of advice and assistance from time to time and, and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, one one thing you said earlier about being willing to reach out to your mentors even when perhaps there's not a reason to do so. That that's interesting to that's me. Crucial. Cause, yeah, because I crucial. yeah, I because I'll admit I I have some people in my life who I've I've wanted to reach out, but I've thought ah well I don't really have any I don't have any update necessarily. I mean of course I can give them an update, but it almost felt self serving. Uh, but I, I appreciate that someone you know, of your, of your stature, your seniority would re even recommend that, uh, coming maybe from the receiving time, receiving side often, uh, any tips on how, maybe what that would look like for a mentee yeah, to be reaching out? Me, in fact, the best of all, um, I mean, one of the really great, uh, individuals that I've been privileged to mentor over the years is now the head of the U S military Academy's department of behavioral sciences and, and leadership. Um, and, Spain, now a full colonel with a PhD from Harvard, uh, but whom I started really watching, if you will, all the way back, I think when he was a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division, I was a colonel, and he was famously exceedingly fit, and and he was in the best ranger competition, and along the way, then ultimately, he was my uh, aide at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, when I was between my three and four tours in Iraq. And then he went with me to Iraq as a major. Uh, and he did just about the entire period of the surge for me. It was 19 and a half months. He, he got home for a few months, I think, and then came back to do the final period as well. He had several kids. But we've remained very, very close. And he would just send me a note periodically uh, as he was going through these various assignments subsequent to our time in Iraq during the surge together. And obviously that's now 13, 14 years ago. He just say, hey boss, just want to get you out. Um, don't need anything. And I'd actually have a sigh of relief at that because <laughs> you get again, there's there's no shortage of requests and, and rightly so, no shortage of requests for advice requests. I mean, it's just, you, you get quite a few of those book blurbs, you name it. I mean, there's a never ending stream of that kind of request. And it's nice when someone just pops up and says, Hey, I just wanted to let you know how things are going. That's the kind of interaction I think that is really wonderful. You know, every now and then you'd say, Hey, could you write a letter of recommendation or could you be a nominator or a seconder or whatever for this council or that graduate school or what have you. And you're delighted to do that. Um, but I think that's the kind of relationship that is the most productive from, I'd like to think from the, the point of view of the mentee, certainly affirm it as the, the mentor. <laughs> well, that will, for everyone listening, I think we've been given just a very practical tip. I'll start today 
of doing something that honestly, I just hadn't, for whatever reason, I just thought it was something that I didn't have anything to offer, but you're right. It's, I think we overcomplicate it sometimes. Just, it's a relationship yeah. and it's just an update. That's all it is. And I mean, it yeah. doesn't have to be something formal. There's no contract. You don't have to negotiate yeah. the terms of reference. Um, <laughs> just have a relationship and, and get on about it. And, yeah. but again, you know, communicate. I mean, at the worst, the individual just hits the delete key. I mean, yeah, right. but actually that's not going to happen in most right. cases. You know, again, it should be concise, clear, all the rest of that stuff that you'd hope in communication, um, not endless. Um, and, you know, the rumination should be sort of kept to a minimum. But, but again, that's what I think mentors really appreciate. And there's a ton of people pop up on the net all the time and say, hey, just want to let you know how things are going. And then when they say, hey, look, I'm at a bit of a juncture in life and sort of considering these options, can I come see you or could we have a call or a Zoom? You're delighted to do that. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, sir. Thanks for sharing that. And it leads into the next topic I wanted to cover with you, and that's team building. I'm always thinking about this as a leader. Let's say I take over a new role. Uh, how do you build an effective team? And you've had to do this in many different contexts and oftentimes with short notice. And I'm just curious, what are some things that go through your mind when you are taking over a new role about building the team to operate at, at its optimized level? You know, there are certain, I think, activities that are from any of those moments in, in one's professional life. Before you actually embark on those, which typically involve communication, a variety of activities that bring people together that, again, can help develop the kinds of personal and professional ties and bonds and relationships that are critical to, to teamwork. Uh, and a whole series of, you know, what might be the team building, most of which are pretty commonly uh, obvious. But before that, you have to really figure out what are the priorities for the team. And so um, when I was privileged to command an organization, for example, I put a lot of thought into you know, what were the big five priorities of this unit be? And that really, really matters. And by the way, it's not just enough to list the top five priorities. You then have to have programmatics about them. You have to have standards, the minimum standard, the maximum standard. What do you get if you exceed the standard? Uh, what do you do if you don't meet the standard? These are so important that any time you gather the organization together, which in a military setting, for say a battalion commander, it's the level where you have about somewhere 650 to 700 or so soldiers, depending on the organization, you do it at least once a month. And particularly, again, in the infantry units, the air assaults and airborne infantry units that I was privileged to command, you typically have a, a run together once a month or so. Um, but then there are other times where you gather people together for various reasons. And, and again, if these are really, really important, and they are because they're your top five, then you always talk about them. I learned that from the chief of staff of the U.S. Army, General Corovano, who was just an extraordinary leader, trainer, and he had the six imperatives. And I can still recite these things in my sleep. And, you know, I also helped the speechwriters from time to time because I'd already been a speechwriter for the Supreme Allied Commander. And we all were just driven to, you know, please, not the six imperatives again. But he said, look, these guys have never heard from me um, this is my one time addressing this particular fora, and they're going to get the six imperatives. So somewhere in that speech, you better weave those <laughs> six imperatives in. Uh -huh, um, and cool. it was, you know, it, again, if it's important enough and we put out a white paper on it and all this kind of stuff, I mean, this is the big foundation intellectually for what he did as the chief of staff of the army in his final two years in uniform. And that those are the two years that I was his aide. So I learned a lot about that. And in fact, when I was a three-star general in the Army, I, one of the many, many duties that you have at Fort Leavenworth beyond overseeing something like 16 different schools and centers throughout the, the Army and throughout the U.S., we also had the pre-command course there. And so I got to spend out usually an hour and a half with all the future battalion and brigade commanders of the Army. I actually say, you know, you're all spending a lot of time on this leadership philosophy memo. It's usually one or one and a half pages. 
the truth is, you know, you'll do 15 or 20 drafts of it, but nobody really takes it all that seriously because, they, I mean, there's no, it's just, it's troops first, or mission first, troops always, or some, some are more often than others. But it goes up in the bulletin board, troops take a look at it, shrug their shoulders and say, okay, let's see what the, the commander emphasizes. And uh, it's really about what he or she will, will really, again, spend time, resources, uh, money, et cetera, on. That's the real question. Yeah. I actually didn't publish one, and nobody even asked me for it. But what I did publish was the five areas of priority. And so in the very first moment, after taking command, after you make a short, very short speech, you know, usually one or two minutes at most, basically, uh, all standing orders remain the same. You then, we gathered all of the, the entire battalion together in a field house. And I just started, that's when they learned about the, the big five. Uh, and not just that, they learned about the elements of the big five. So, and I mean, I guarantee you that soldiers in that particular b- battalion, the Iron Rockleson Battalion at, in the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, probably could still get at least four of the five, if not all five. I mean, it was it was discipline, it was physical fitness, uh, it was small unit tactics and techniques, especially with live fires. Realistic. I actually got shot in one of them through the chest, which is pretty training for the medics. Uh, and they passed because they kept me alive. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then it was aerosol tactics and techniques since we were in an aerosol unit. And then it was rangering. And, and our view was that if you got twenty enlisted and non-commissioned rangers in a single unit, so they went through the ranger school and then came back to your unit, 20 of them, the unit runs itself because it's such a spectacular uh, leadership and small unit uh, course. So I laid out, here's what we're going to do. You know, we are going to have our own battalion pre-ranger course. We are going to do this. We are going to, and um, and any company that gets 20, you know, the commander in the first sergeant will immediately receive an impact accommodation panel or something like that. But again, I mean, this is full of all of that. And uh, we were completely nuts about physical fitness and discipline and all these other areas. I mean, we were seriously, we, we were not thinker drilling. We had standards. I personally certified every uh, commissioned officer and a senior non-commissioned officer, so platoon sergeant above, on the conduct of physical fitness training by doing a 90-minute physical fitness uh, train with me uh, as the leader. And it covered every aspect of what we were going to do in physical fitness. And we did a lot of it. Some some we talked about because you can't do every single different activity in one second. But I mean, it had many, many facets to it. And that focus contributed to the battalion's achievements. And, you know, we year the cross-country championship, the football championship, the softball too and you know everything else so uh, again if there was a competition which was another element of our culture um, that team worked together to compete and it didn't matter what it was I mean we still take very personally the fact we only came in second in the chili cook-off in the in the hop town gathering at near near town to the annual gathering that they have for all the units we're still going through the after action review and how we could have bought a few more votes or something like that. But but again, that's what that's that's what you've got to have. So you want to build a team, you know, around what? Doing what? What's the mm-hmm. purpose of the team? And so first, spend time on figuring out what it is you really want to accomplish and what the areas priority will be. Again, when Henry Kravis and George Roberts talked to us, they talked every single time about the culture of KKR, uh, which is still, you know, what it was 40 some odd years ago uh and they they just emphasize that again and again and again and it's and it's on our logos it's on the bags that you carry mm-hmm. and i'm very proud to be part of that team so proud that actually i'll look down at the bag and i'll see you know is the is the logo facing out i want people to know i'm part of KKR. that's the test of mm-hmm. our people proud you know we used to have a saying in the military that the best unit in the army is the one unit now the truth is it really is not. I mean, there's better units typically. How do you define best unit, best at what, best at, but again, among infantry units, the, but you know, you just got to believe that's the, that's the unit. And we're going to sing about our unit. And when we're close, we're not going to sing about the 
82nd Airborne if you're in the 101st Airborne Division for assault. I mean, but again, this is what you have to do. You have to think this through and you build a team around that shared pride in your organization. And you do sometimes somewhat goofy things to uh, to build that pride. Um, you know, you may have a shaved sides of your heads or something like that, or you button the top button when you're in the field just to be different. Mm-hmm. And people chide you about it and it brings your unit together more. I mean, again, there was all the, there, there were distinctive features that I think many commanders in the army try to have something that will again, um, instill some pride, uh, inspiration, and, and all the rest. And we had a phenomenal band sergeant major that was just constantly putting signs all around the battalion, you know, this not for the weak or faint hearted, you know, <laughs> marcher. I am, you know, you know, and he was actually serious, <laughs> which is what made it all the more effective. Um, and, you know, the kind of guy that would come in in the morning and they'd say, morning killers, uh, you know, and he quite an inspirational figure. That's what you build, build it all around that kind. And then there just becomes this, over time, you have shared experiences. And the most important shared experiences are the ones that really, you know, sort of hurt the most or cold or, you know, your feet are about to be worn out or whatever. And, of course, for those who have gone through combat, I mean, there's no more substantial and significant shared experience than those uh, have, have experienced in combat. So much value there. And I, I, I think one of the things that comes to mind immediately is that, you know, values are not what you say, they're what you do, which is probably often the times the problem with the leadership philosophy is you, you're just putting something on a paper, but what are you, to your point, what are you actually going to do? Uh, what are your priorities going to be? I also love the idea of repeating. I think sometimes leaders, we worry that we're repeating ourselves. Pat Lencioni says that the CEO should be the chief repeating officer, should be the person who's just yeah. constantly repeating even yeah. when you think you've told them enough, <laughs> the you've six imperatives. Enough. Um, yeah. And and of course, you do a degree of refinement as well. When I was commanding the third in Iraq, I put out my own counterinsurgency guidance. Um, and it was a series of admonitions. It was several pages, actually. And it was meant to be applicable to every single level, whether you were at my level or at the level where you're translating big ideas at my level into concrete action. Uh, outside the wire, under body armor, and kind of lower helmet, and with a weapon, doing what only those outside the wire could do. And it had a series of admonitions, secure and serve the people, and then it would explain what that meant. There would be reconciliation. Again, you can't kill or capture your way out of industrial strength insurgency. You have to reconcile with as many of the rank and file as you can. The next one is pursue the irreconcilables even more relentlessly. And explains that they they have to be killed or captured. I, we preferred capture, frankly, because we wanted to get information from them. That's really important, and that that also helps build the culture. There was one on there that said promote initiative, and the next line was in the absence of orders, figure out what they should have been and execute aggressively. Yeah, That's that. what you want. Um, all of these, you know, and again, they were quite short admonitions. That's how they all started. And then it would explain what that ad- admonition meant. How you how do you operationalize it? And again, I think those are, that kind of information is hugely important. So, and I just kept refining it. It was literally always open as a Word document, you know, on the top of my uh, screen. And I'd go in every time I found something new, like the saying I saw on a company commander's board that said, in the absence of order, figure out what they should have been executed aggressively. Uh, I'd steal that, uh, plagiarize it, you know, the highest form of flattery, uh, <laughs> give it attribution, and then and put it in the, uh, the document. Any tips on coming up with the top five? I'm, I'm curious your process for that. Was it you alone kind of? on a whiteboard or was it you with a team? How, how do you come up? What would you offer to leaders on how you figure out what are our most important things to focus on? Well, and by the way, they would not always be the same, even for the unit that I was privileged to command. Um, in the, the the war years of the really intense deployment, year deployed, year home, year deployed, year home, year deployed, when you're actually home, the priorities very well should include family. Um, and it would, and that would, you would operationalize that by, you know, almost never training during the weekend. 
mm-hmm. something that you might normally do back during peacetime uh, training and readiness where you're not deploying all the time. Uh, there would be a whole series of actions. Um, it did it, 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 certainly have physical fitness, but even under the physical fitness, there would probably be uh, something about, uh, in a sense, sort of resilience training, actually, because again, work changes people and uh, and you have to recognize that and you've got to figure out okay how do we um how do we ensure that the formulation again i think it comes from uh, experience it's literally the same formulation of the big ideas in a you know strategic leadership for example as we discussed before you have there's four tasks and the first of those is to get the big ideas right and what i've always said about that is that it is some it's a process that is best done iteratively, at least for me, because I've never found the right tree to sit under and get hit on the head by Newton's apple form. I get hit on the head by a seed of an idea, and then you shape it into a big idea, like a clay object making. Uh, and you do that through a lot of brainstorming, interaction with a very inclusive, open process. Uh, you want everybody feeling that they're inside the tent during that kind of process and, and all the rest of that. And as an example, between the three and four star tours that I had in Iraq, so my second and third tour, we had a 15 month period uh, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where, as I noted, the Combined Arms Center commander oversaw all kinds of different organizations throughout our army. And we spent a great deal of time during that particular 15 month period trying to distill the big ideas uh, to learn or at least to identify what we needed to learn uh, from our first several years in Iraq and our first, say, four or five years in Afghanistan. And the result of that was the Counterinsurgency Field Manual, a manual that was published faster than any other manual in and Marine Corps, because Jim Mattis was my partner for that history. Uh, never has there been a manual published in less than a year from inception from the beginning to the publication. Uh, and it was only possible because we had a chief of staff of the Army who had told me when I asked for guidance before I went out to Fort Leavenworth, he said, shake up the Army, Dave. I said, Chief, I can do that. If you're with me, we can do it. He said, I am. And, you know, he'd come out a minimum once a month, get updated on it, and he had our back. So, again, that's what we spent our time doing was trying to figure out what are the big ideas. And we captured those in that field manual. Then we adapted them each of us to Iraq or Afghanistan, as the case was. And I got to do it in both places. But again, in Iraq, the big ideas were that we must secure the people. We can only do it by living with them. We have to take back control of security from the Iraqi security forces to whom we transition control, but who've just been so beaten up by the the escalating level of violence during the year prior to the surge. Uh, that you can't kill or capture way out of insurgency. You have to promote reconciliation. You have to pursue the irreconcilable even more relentlessly. And it has to be a civil military effort. I mean, even the campaign plan was signed by both the ambassador and me. It was a joint product uh, of civil and military. And, and again, that's how we executed. That's how we oversaw it. Every 90 days, he and I would sit down for a six-hour massive session as we ground through every single one of the programs and, and and lines of effort that we were pursuing. And we had people in from Washington, from central headquarters, from all the embassies, also all the commanders were there, all the other ambassadors and everything else. So again, it's about making sure you've got those big ideas right by, uh, again, being very inclusive in the formulation and making sure that there's a culture where people don't hesitate uh, to challenge uh, the, the big ideas as they're being formed, that aren't, aren't, aren't intimidated to say, hey, you know, Emperor, you're, you're not fully clothed today or something like that. That's really important, I think. Although also important is that the, the strategic leader has to recognize that at a certain point, he or she does have to decide specifically on what the big ideas are, what the areas of focus are. Then you have to communicate them, you have to oversee their implementation, and you have to determine how to refine them to do it again and again. And that's those are the four tasks of a strategic leader. That makes a lot of sense. That it's not something you do in a vacuum, uh, like all 
products far better done when you have other people's eyes on them. I'm curious, also related to team building, what you look for in people. Because you've, I mean, you were in the military. Sometimes in the military, you, you don't necessarily get to pick your team. Uh, but I, I would imagine for some of the positions and roles you played, you did get to pick your team. Uh, you've now been in the civilian world for some time. I'm just curious, what are some specific things that you really look for when you're selecting people to be on your team? Well, I actually really did try to influence this all the way back when, I mean, if you're the aide to the chief of staff of the army and the chief is reasonably supportive, um, you can actually build a team for your future command. There were 10 <laughs> infantry officers that were on orders for for Kentucky by the time I left the chief. And That's the awesome. chief, you know, he sort of was looking at he said, sure, fine. I mean, he <laughs> soldier for him for two years. And when he would be having dinner at West Point with the superintendent of West Point, I'd be back out in the Souk's garden interviewing cadets to, <laughs> you know, find it. And I'm looking for superstars. I'm looking for people who are seriously bright, uh, who have a proven record as leaders who are, you know, in those units in particular as physical fitness was a very important component. I mean, if you're going to carry a rucksack or jump out of planes or, you know, assault from helicopters or whatever, that's, that's got to be a real foundation piece. Um, but what, and you're looking for people that have interpersonal skills. Um, but again, a lot of it does come down to, I mean, just do they have the brains? Uh, do they have, and there's a certain point in life where it becomes about judgment. Because I remember people would say, so what are you looking for in your three star subordinate commanders in Iraq or Afghanistan? You know, is it somebody who can keep up with you running? And I said, you know, are you joking? I want, and in fact, if you look at the two, uh, three-star operational commanders during my time, three-star JSOC commanders, but the, uh, uh, again, and General Austin was the, the second of those, General Nero was the first. They were both two very large former football players. Um, and and again, were not known in their day as, as being um, gazelles, let's say. But, I mean, they, again, very fit and all the rest of that. But again, they it wasn't about physical fitness at that level. This is about, again, do they have operational judgment? Um, and then obviously, can they exercise leadership competently, effectively? Uh, can they inspire people to, to, to perform hard tasks? Can they big and build teams? Can they keep everyone united, pull together during really tough, tough times? I mean, again, the first six, eight months uh, that General Odierno and I went through in the surge were really, really, really tough. They were grinding months. It was a grinding experience. And periodically, you know, we'd have a very first, the very first, every single day was a 7.30 to 8.30 battlefield update and analysis. And it was all of the, you know, he'd, he'd be in his command center. I was in mine. It's a tiered seating. So you're sitting there, you have screens all over video conferencing is pulling everybody into it and the briefers up there. So everybody hears it. And you had all kinds of outlying commands that are monitoring it. Um, and then at the end of it, he'd come over to ours and we'd get together with a handful of the key general officers. Then it went down to just the U S and the British, because there was some intelligence that we only, we shared. And then it would be just, sometimes we called it the small, small, small group. Uh, which was just General Odierno and me, the big O and, and Lion Six. And I said, Ray, what are you thinking, big guy? You know, when does this turn? I said, I, you know, I've got three months, two months, one month, three weeks before I go back to Congress. Um, how are you seeing it? And thankfully, we, we achieved some really substantial progress in the final uh, say eight, nine weeks prior to Ambassador Crocker and going back to the very tumultuous hearings in September of 2007, where there was sufficient progress uh, and quite dramatic progress to enable us maintaining enough congressional support to at least ensure the war wasn't deauthorized or defunded or constrained or constricted in some manner. So, again, you're, what are you looking for? And then you have to ask for what? Um, you know, I, t I always had what was called an initiatives group. And I mean, basically, for that particular group, um, 
I knew where every Rhodes and Marshall Scholar in the U.S. Army was. They were either working for me or they had worked for me already or they were going to work for me. Um, and there's certain credentials, certain achievements that people have had uh, that sort of identify them, even if you haven't already worked with them. So, I mean, I used to keep my eye on every year who's the number one graduate of the Command and General Staff College, um, who has earned a PhD. Um, a lot of the those that taught in my former department at West Point Social Sciences Department, they were often very, very uh, impressive individuals and had gone through uh, academic uh, training, if you will, uh, that really helped them do what they needed to help me because I'm operating at a level that is really, it's not just strategic, it's often political military. It's, uh, it's about, again, the confidence of the coalition, the governmental leaders, uh, all of these kinds of issues. And, and you're looking for people that can put themselves inside your head, even though they're just captains or majors. Um, I couple that worked for me twice in that capacity in Iraq as a three-star and, and as a four-star. Uh, they just kept coming back. They couldn't escape. <laughs> um, so so they, one of them is a very senior partner now, Mackenzie. It was, she was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, young, and then there's another, uh, Charlie Miller, who's now a two-star general uh, in the Army. So, and, but there, there, there's more. Um, and again, we had a black book, if you will, of, you know, we kept notes on really impressive people and we waited, waited until they were available or could be pulled. Because if you're commanding the surge in Iraq, you can actually go after the person you really want. Uh, and services were generally very, very supportable. But when I went to U.S. Central Command, I, I knew who I wanted to be the deputy commander of U.S. Central Command. Uh, his name was, at the time, he was still a Brigadier General, or maybe a very new Major General, Marine Corps. He had played a very important role uh, in the uh, the reconciliation effort, the Onbar Awakening, as it was called, the Sons of Iraq program, where we reconciled with the Sunni tribes of this very, very violent uh, province west of Baghdad, which included the Marine The Brigadier General John Allen, I saw him out there as the Deputy Commander of the Marine Division. So impressive that I said, this is the guy that I want. I want to take the gates. Uh, and I said, that's who I want. He had never even had a two-star assignment, actually, in the Marine Corps. He was still sort of in a, a one-star, but he'd been promoted. Uh, but so he was promoted to three stars very quickly right after that, having never had a two-star assignment. Really extraordinary individual. And that's what you do. That's how you build a great team. And, you know, we all always talked. One of the adages was you build a great team, one great person at a time, hmm. and you do everything you can to, to identify them. When I was a full colonel in the 82nd Airborne Division commanding a brigade, there were a lot of majors on post that all wanted to come there. Fort Bragg was the post in the Army, and they're maybe at the Corps headquarters or division headquarters, and they're dying to get down to a battalion uh, and, and serve their time as a major, what's called branch qualifying assignment. And I said, sure. You know, they'd call up my adjutant and say, hey, can we get an interview with General Petraeus? would like to come down, or Colonel Petraeus would like to come down to the 504th Parish Infantry Regiment. And um, he'd say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he'll be outside the headquarters and uh, sign, uh, just show up in PT gear, uh, you know, 6 or 6.30, whatever time we did PT. Uh, on such and such a day, and he'll interview you while doing PT for 90 minutes. <laughs> and and there was a standard. Um, and, you know, I said, I'm happy to run faster than the standard. You know, give it your best shot. Um, but let's do it. But um, you couldn't go slower than the standard. If it was slower than the standard, there's a certain point at which I would just say, okay, let's, you know, you clearly aren't meeting the standard. You can do your own after-action review about what it is you need to do. And what you should do before you compete to come to the the Devils and Baggy Pants Brigade. <laughs> oh, I love that brigade. It's right down the road for me now. And uh, I, so I, real quick follow up on that one, sir. It still has that culture, I think. Oh, it does. Work. Yeah, we did an I mean, obstacle the course. Yeah, the it devil, does. The Devil Brigade is uh, in that, you know, Devil Field where we had all the, you know, the pull-up bars and the dip bars and all these other oh, obstacle yeah. courses and everything else. I mean, it's just, a certain something special about that. Yeah. 
that, that, that really is, it's just there. It's in the air that you breathe in that particular unit area. Yeah. I mean, it's so much history too, which is just awesome to be able to refer yeah. to. Yeah. I, so I, I want to move real quick. I know we've got less than 10 minutes. Um, I want to move to a lightning round quite, uh, real quick. And just to hit some, some points that I really wanted to follow up with you last time. What is one habit routine or ritual that for you has made the biggest positive difference? Well, I think physical training certainly is one of them. Um, you know, I don't also like to think a certain degree of uh, intellectual development, whether it's, you know, reading a book or a biography or, you know, again, pursuing professional development beyond that, which you actually do in the course of your career and your assignments, your actual positions and watching others and also doing it yourself. So I think maybe those probably would be the ones that I'd highlight, but certainly the idea that, you know, every single day, I mean, the whole, one of the great reasons for doing PT early in the morning, as we do in the military is that, you know, if all else fails throughout that day, at least you'll have done <laughs> something good That's uh, right. and, and you do it right at the outset and you feel good about it for the rest of the day. Uh, most days, at least we did, we did physical fitness, even in combat. I mean, even as the commander of the surge, we had one of those big houses around uh, old, you know, Saddam. Remember, he created these palace complexes. And so we had some villa that I think his mother or something like that. We had all the guys crammed in there. We had a gym in there. I mean, it wasn't spectacular, but it was enough to get a, a workout in. And then many days of the week as well, we would schedule a run, although we tended to have to do those in the afternoon, uh, which wasn't easy there given the heat. But but we still did it. And what we did is we multitasked. We brought in majors from around that that base camp victory for battalions around there so that we could talk to them at the same time. And I could, you know, get their brains, find out what's going on. And they were young enough that they could probably keep up with us. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think that you've changed the most as a leader since West Point? Well, Obviously, I mean, every single assignment is a developmental experience. Um, I think there's a certain point where I realize, you know, you can really compete and you should. And, and, and you know, I truly came to recognize, not explicitly at the time, I mean, it was input, but I realized that life is a competitive endeavor and you don't get a trophy just for showing up. Um, there's no, you know, people don't hire people who are proud to be average. They want to hire, again, superstars. And if you think you're a superstar, go out and prove it. What do you most want to be remembered for, sir? That's a hard question, actually. Um, I, you know, I guess that, in a sense, the one position um, would have to be the surgeon rock because it was a pretty desperate situation when the team and I took over. Um, you know, when there's 53 dead bodies due to violence, civilian dead bodies due to violence every 24 hours in the capital of a country, that is out of control. Um, and, and it was a pretty dramatic reversal of the situation that seemed destined for a civil war, a full-on Sunni-Shia civil war. Um, you know, when it comes back, since we started talking about mentoring, the legacy that one leaves in many respects is uh, beyond the legacy of one's immediate family is the legacy of those who were privileged to touch, to to help, to, again, mentor, to advise, uh, sometimes to enable, uh, whatever, inspire even, maybe. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a good bit of that as well. And by the way, I should have mentioned, I mean, you compete to be the best team player, too. Right. Yeah. And And there are moments where what you or even your organization really wants, such as during the fight to Baghdad, and, you know, the 101st Airborne Division's next rendezvous to destiny is north to Baghdad, you know, all this stuff. And, and our, our goal, we wanted to be the ones that air assaulted into history. Actually, you air assault on Baghdad International Airport and you take it. You're the one that seizes the, what would seem to be the prize. And, you know, the 82nd Airborne, they wanted to jump on it. They were by the runway with their air items issued. And then the Inventor Division mechanized, they were going to thunder run to it. And there was a point fairly early on um, where I realized that, you know what, the biggest contribution we can make to this fight is to support the 3rd Infantry Division mechanized. Um, and let's push our Apaches out in front of them. Uh, he called up and asked for if we had any extra 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition. I gave him the entire unit. 
because the 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 animal was already on the gun. So just take the unit. That's the quickest way to get get it to you. I said, I asked him what else he needed. He said, how about an infantry battalion? He said, we got a lot of tanks and Bradleys, but there aren't many guys coming out of them. So we can blast through anything, but then it's hard to hold it because it's swarmed. I said, well, okay, great. Where do you want them? And, and so we are assaulted my old battalion, the 3rd Battalion, 107th Infantry, uh, out to Baghdad International Airport and held off. They were, played a key role in holding off one of the more determined counterattacks um, after Thunder Run that had gone all the way to Baghdad International Airport. So again, you, you got to compete. You have, there are times when you have to subordinate what your organization and you really would like to be doing. Um, and we we recognize that we should be a follow and support unit for the third infantry division mechanized. They're the ones who are best configured for this. And it's about, again, the greater organization and the greater goal instead of our desire to, again, aerosolize the history. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, sir. Well, sir, I think our time is up. I appreciate you coming back on for a round two. I learned a lot. It was a pleasure. And I know a lot of people will take a lot from this, sir. So I appreciate you and uh, I hope you have a great weekend. Airborne. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation again with General Petraeus. There were a lot of key takeaways for me, one of which, as I mentioned during the conversation, is just the willingness to reach out to mentors, not just when you need something, which is what I tend to do or when I feel like I have a good reason, but even just to check in, say, hey, how you doing? This is... Uh, you know, this is what's going on in my life. Don't need anything from you, but just wanted to say hello. And, and I, I think I made this point during the conversation, but sometimes we overcomplicate the mentor-mentee relationship. It really is just a relationship. And I appreciated that insight that he gave us. Also, I loved what he had to say about building a team. I asked him that question about, well, what do you think about when you're building your team? And he reframed it and said, well, the first thing I think about is what is the purpose of the team? What are our priorities? And what a great reminder, and this makes me think back of my conversation in last episode with Deanne Turner about culture and values and how you have this purpose, this mission, and these values. But if as a leader, if as you're forming your team, and I've been guilty of this, if you don't already have clarity around where the organization is is going or the, the focus and the priorities, and you don't necessarily need to do that alone. And he said he does that in an iterative process, but you should have some vision. You should have, uh, as he says, his top five, and then you should systematize it. You should create incentives and priorities. And I thought that was a great point that he made about that. A lot of other great insights. I'd love to know what your big takeaways were from this episode. So shoot me a note. Uh, you just go to cal at calwalters.me email uh, or leave a review. And again, I do not take for granted the fact that you are spending time with me on this podcast. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. I really appreciate you all who are out there leading your teams, leading your families, leading yourself. Leadership matters. And every time that we grow as a leader, that means the organization's getting better, the team's getting better, your people are getting better. And I just want to encourage you to take the time to continue to grow as you're doing on this podcast. I, uh, I spent the, this past weekend, this past Father's Day weekend with my dad and my father-in-law, and it was a reminder that we have to make the most of every little moment that we have. And that's true in our leadership, it's true in our family, it's true in our life. And so I, I hope you go and make this a great week, no matter how stressful your week is. Find the time to, to appreciate what you do have. Be grateful of all the many things that you have going right in your life, despite how much might be going wrong. Thank you again for being here. Remember, life is short, so let's go make it count.